this is a frustration that I have very often when I start talking about this. As people are becoming more uncomfortable, they're like, yeah, but not every situation. I'm not talking about every situation. I'm talking about the situations where there's risk and there is abusive behaviours. Can we just focus on that and you put your feelings to one side, please? Hey, welcome to episode 36 of the Ross Trevino Project. If you enjoyed this episode, then give it a share on social media, drop a review on Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe and follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TRTPPod. Today's guest was gracious enough to take time away from baking the cake to come talk with me. She's the host of the Four Freedoms Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, she's back. It's Sadia Hamid. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I've been baking cake because it's, uh, it's my mother-in-law's birthday. Take this shit out. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck's sake. Fuck's sake. Fuck's sake. I'm really pissed off. <laughs> oh, what the fuck am I going to do about this cake? I'm going to have to buy her cake, can I? Yeah. Mary Berry said, check it after 20 minutes. 25 minutes, it was fucking lies. Uh. <laughs> oh, I'm so livid. Oh, fuck's sake. I woke up. I woke up at 8 o'clock to start baking. I'm really pissed off. <laughs> what a waste of a fucking morning. I could have had lying. Uh. What the fuck? <laughs> Oh, I'm so livid. Oh, I'm so livid. <laughs> right. Let me get myself set up. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> I ain't going to get over this cake. I'm so ah. angry. So, so yeah. how does the zeitgeist of political correctness affect the sort of the job landscape that you work within? What I do find is the sector, the whole sector is more politicised now. Um, and early days, I would say that it needed that political injection because, you know, it was it was harder for women to leave abusive relationships. There was a stigma. Like, early, early domestic abuse services were um, considered homebreakers and homewreckers. So there was a kind of political edge to it. Um, like if you think about, for instance, um, and it's, it's difficult because uh, the domestic abuse and sexual violence sort of sectors, they're very separate now, um, though there are crossovers because it's under the same umbrella of violence against women. They are quite separate. Um, sexual violence actually gets a lot more, a lot more resources um, than, than domestic violence um, and domestic violence is more. So it depends on the kind of sexual violence service as well. Domestic violence is more um, high risk. Um, there is, um, it's more firefighting uh, with sexual violence services. Um, so the frontline sexual violence services that do emergency work, that's like a rape has happened and they have to bring somebody in for a forensic examination. Whereas um, rape crisis more often are dealing with historic cases so it could be a week ago, it could be a month ago, it could be a year ago, it could be childhood sexual abuse. So the, the, the incident is in the past. They might get people where there's ongoing sexual violence, um, but you're, more, you're also likely to see that in domestic violence services because they're still in that relationship, still in that dynamic, it's still ongoing. Um, but sexual violence services staff are better looked after than domestic violence services. It's all, um, you know, uh, you have something called clinical supervision where somebody um, checks in on the well-being of the worker and with sexual violence services, that was mandatory every month. You had to do that. There was no, there was no kind of two ways about it. Um, with domestic violence... What part was mandatory, sorry? So it's called clinical supervision. It's basically like, because we're seeing quite a lot of trauma, the expectation was that um, you would um, you would have you would have to get ca counseling 
internally within the service. So that counselling, um, it's done by somebody who is um, clinically trained, who is independent from the organisation. Um, they might be kind of like continually contracted by the organisation to come in and provide that, won't be your line manager. Um, and I think that's really, really crucial. Like something that I'm really, really passionate about is that happening in any organisation where you're providing care, support, emotional kind of support. So I think that should be happening drug, drug and alcohol services, mental health services, um, you know, um, even housing. Like if you're continually working with homeless people, um, you are emotionally going to be drained by that. Um, and I think professionals need to be looked after so they could do a good job for, for the clients that they're working with and for. Um, and sometimes that might mean that you need to slag off your boss to somebody who's not connected to the organization, right? Um, so looking after staff really does help clients in the long run. Um, but in domestic abuse services, that's not necessarily happening. Like it's, they say clinical supervision's on offer. Sometimes it's offered from your line manager, not an external uh, um, clinical supervisor. And it's voluntary, you don't have to do it. You could say you don't want that. Um, and sometimes women that do go and get clinical supervision are um, almost taken the piss out of. When it's just about personal well-being, I think that's really, really important. But in terms of, so I've kind of gone off track a little bit, I realise. But in, in terms of identity politics specifically, what I've found, Ross, is that it's getting harder for, um, with all the kind of woke shit that's going on, it's getting harder for us to treat everybody the same. Um, so I don't, I don't ever hear any excuses made for um, white British perpetrators. Um, it's just considered point blank unacceptable if it, regardless of what they've done and what's happened in their past. They might have grown up in a really, really abusive household, um, but we, we do, we do expect a level of accountability. Whereas with ethnic minorities. Um, I do see a bit of pussyfooting about that. And it's translating in cases, right? Because um, in, all, in counties where you have no specialist service that's only dealing with ethnic minority cases, <clears throat> the generic domestic abuse and sexual violence services aren't seeing any uptake from ethnic minorities. Um, social care are the only ones that have the, the power to hold ethnic minorities to account and to enforce um, like engagement with services. The trouble is that um, most voluntary sector services, engagement is voluntary. If they, can, if they turn up and say, well, I'm being made to do this, I'm being made to engage with services, those services aren't gonna work with them because if you're being made to do something, you're not gonna engage with it properly anyway. Um, so, so in these I, cases, I, I wrote, sorry, uh, are you talking about a female who's been in a situation like abused by her husband, say, and then yeah. but she she won't want to come, or are you talking about the guy who's perpetrating okay. both? A little bit okay. of both. So um, with women, um, with domestic abuse services, engagement's voluntary. If you, as an adult woman, if you have been asked to engage with a service and you don't want to, there's nothing that anybody can do to make you engage with other services. If there is threat to life, either to yourself or somebody else, then it can get taken out of your hands. That's something called safeguarding. So uh, there's statutory organizations that have a, a duty of care to, to get involved to preserve life, basically. So if it's an emergency, they have to get involved. Now, the other thing is, uh, and I'm going to kind of jump around a bit, which I have to apologise for. Um, so if you're living in a, in a normal area um, and somebody hears shouting, particularly children shouting, or they hear something that doesn't sound right from the neighbours, they might call the police and no, like get get that help to come to you. However, if you're living in an area where the community thinks that it's okay, like domestic abuse is okay, sexual violence is okay, and they justify it through um, cultural cultural ideas, religious ideas, you know, their belief system, and the entire community has that belief system, 
usually they're not going to call the police, not on their neighbours, because, you know, it's it's acceptable. And we do have those those ghettos effectively right now. Um, so uh, with, with with victims, if they're being asked to engage with the service and they don't, there's nothing that anybody can do. Um, with perpetrators, if they're being asked to engage with the service, if they turn up to engage with the service and they don't, want to be there services aren't going to work with them if they're court mandated and they have to go through the probation service that's fine they'll have to do it as part of their like probation order and if they don't then they then they end up being put hauled back into court however if somebody's doing it because they're made to do it the likelihood is there's not going to be that that shift in ideas and behaviour. Um, it might happen, but I think it's rarer. Um, now, the other issue is early intervention. It makes such a difference, right? So where you've got in the community people calling, I can hear shouting at my neighbours. So that's comparatively low level right it's not nice an unhealthy relationship isn't nice for anybody and it shouldn't really happen right but shouting like hearing uh, like a verbal altercation calling calling the police the police and social care and professionals getting involved at a very very early stage still um where it might not yet have escalated you're not seeing that with ethnic minorities so when you hear professionals making excuses for ethnic minorities that, you know, we're institutionally racist because um, uh, prisons are overcrowded with ethnic minorities. Well, yeah, that's your fault, actually, because you haven't got involved when there's that first instance of shouting, when there's that first phone call. You haven't gone into the communities and said, if you hear shouting at your neighbours, give us a bell, you won't get into trouble. You just have to make the report and then we can come out. You don't have to make an official report. You can request a welfare check and the police can come out and do something. Rather, what ends up happening is that abuse carries on. So the first instance of abuse, um, generally, if you feel like you've got away with it, what are you likely to do? You're likely to do it again, right? And if you get away with it the second time, you're likely to do it again and it's going to increase slowly slowly it's going to increase in severity so what we see with ethnic minorities where professionals are reluctant to get involved because you know institutional fucking racism then what what they end up doing is letting them off the hook letting them off the hook letting them off the hook and getting involved when there's serious ongoing physical violence for a long period of time there's been a lot of damage done. So by the time they're hauled into the courts, they're more likely, statistically, ethnic minorities are more likely to submit not guilty pleas as well. I think the CPS published a report a couple of years ago. Um, so they're more likely to submit a non, not, not guilty plea, more likely to get a higher prison sentence for that. Um, and the abuse would have been ongoing for a lot, lot longer. Um, the punishment is likely to be severer. That's why we've got more ethnic minorities in prison because professionals still pussyfoot around this demographic and are so worried about their own goddamn jobs. Whereas, like, I've been talking about this for over a decade, Ross. Like, if you're working with ethnic minorities, there's likely to be ethnic minority perpetrators and ethnic minority victims because that's usually the case with with um, most demographics really actually so you you can like if you were a racist you would just back off and not do anything period right which is why the kind uh, I, I realized we had this report from the conservatives saying that we don't have institutional racism and i realized the woke are very much going on about institutional racism but the thing is the institutional racism that the conservatives are saying doesn't exist and the woke are saying does exist. I don't think that kind of institutional racism exists. I don't think that professionals specifically target ethnic minorities. They might have done in the past. I don't think that's the case today. We've got very, very robust legislation to protect against that. 
And I know when there's human interactions, it's very difficult to prove anyway. The way I think institutional racism does exist is the fact that they're not held to the same standards as their white counterparts in Britain. Like we wouldn't, we wouldn't make excuses for white perpetrators. So why do we make excuses for brown perpetrators about their culture, their religion, their family history? Domestic abuse is generational. We see it in our work throughout every client, you know, bar a tiny, tiny handful, proportionately, you could probably say 80 to 90% percent of the clients that we work with, there's been a history of domestic abuse, right? So be it brown, black, white, whatever you call them, there is likely to have been generation after generation after generation of abuse, but you don't make excuses for white perpetrators, but you do for brown. And in that, in that sphere, ultimately it's it's the victims that don't get justice because we're still masturbating over brown perpetrators you know wanting to protect their dignity and their we're so concerned about making sure we treat them fairly and in that process we throw brown victims under the bus and 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 how this is spilled over to white victims we've seen that in grooming gang cases that was a very long answer to your question ross <laughs> that's right so when you you say um uh, ethnic minorities uh is the issue you're mainly talking about uh, to do with honor culture and if so like what parts of the world does this behavior like tend to originate from in terms of honor culture mm. that like it's got quite an old history um and it has happened in quite a lot of parts of the world um what we would consider sort of um the misogyny of the past in british culture is very similar to honor culture except there wasn't necessarily always you know the murder wasn't always necessarily the end we we saw other punishments um today um, if we were to think just in the British context, um, the biggest culprits are Pakistanis and South Asians, but Pakistanis always are at the top in terms of offending. Now, we do have the biggest Pakistani diaspora. Yeah, I was going to say, that is that to do with the numbers of the, the raw numbers of there's much, you know, much more people yeah, in Pakistan there's much who live more in England than there are, for instance, or. Or, or Hindus, for that matter. But um, the best statistics to look at to reflect on this every year are the forced marriage statistics from the forced marriage unit. They they release very, very detailed statistics every year. Um, and if you were to look at the statistics for the last, I don't know, five, seven years, Pakistanis are right at the top every single year. Um, and it's usually between 40 and 50% in terms of the number of um, uh, like um, offenders from that, that demographic, followed by um, it's usually Indians, Bangladeshis, the, uh, the, 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 the next two competing for the second sort of spot. Um, but it's not just that. We're, we're kind of importing from various parts of the world very very misogynistic ideas so with for from my uh job some eastern europeans still have very very sexist outdated ideas um the only difference again i would state is that they don't necessarily murder their um women for honor specifically for the male reputation however in this the kind of sphere of a intimate relationship they might be controlling they more so than their kind of they might justify their their abusive behavior more through culture and through their kind of um their belief systems that they've imported and that's a that's a conversation that we do really need to start having in this country because we have got to a point in britain and this is actually because of domestic abuse and sexual violence services, where unanimously we can say that domestic abuse and sexual violence are wrong. Um, and we all feel very comfortable in that. A few years ago, there was resistance to that. Um, 
However, now we're very, very comfortable in saying that. And thankfully, what I'm seeing is that if we still, if there's still areas that we haven't dealt with, um, people feel very comfortable, uh, parliamentarians feel very comfortable in going, yeah, let's crack on and do this because we're not living, you know, in the 1920s anymore. However, what we're importing is people who still have that idea of the 1920s, um, but even more so with more violence, more aggression and they're more, they're more rigid about their ideas. Now, if you want mass migration, then you have to be able to assert that this is, this is not acceptable in Britain, um, that we have certain laws, certain policies, that means that you can't abuse your partner, whatever the ideas you've imported. And it, this is the other thing also, I think as well, um, because Ayan Ayan Hirsi Ali wrote a book recently about um, about this issue, about the importing of misogyny, essentially, if we're honest, um, from um, other nations. However, Ross, my family are creating the fourth and fifth generation in this country, and they're still very very misogynistic. Um, so it isn't necessarily a case of this is being imported. This is here and has been for a long time and it's not being challenged. Some of the younger generations, it's interesting, some of the younger generations, they talk about, uh, particularly the men born and raised here, talk about wanting a traditional wife. Um, and the thing that a lot of people have missed is that they're not after traditional because I've met women in this country in that demographic that are very, very traditional, very, very old fashioned, it's not tradition that they want, it's submission. They want somebody who they've got complete control over. Now, if somebody's been imported from another country for the purposes of marriage, um, one thing that you have over them for quite some time is their immigration status. It takes time to um, become permanent in the country. So you've got that you've got a woman who's already isolated because she's coming from another country. You've got somebody who you're expecting to do as they're, you're, as they're told because they're trained up to, to do that in, in their home nations. Sadly, women, are, women in, in their home countries are changing as well, right? So when there's this expectation that I'm going to get this submissive slave essentially and they don't fulfill that that expectation what do you think is going to happen there how much control does the, the the person in the relationship that's brought this person into the country have now I'm not saying that in every situation you're going to get that right but and, and uh, this is a frustration that I have very often when I start talking about this as people are becoming more uncomfortable, they're like, yeah, but not every situation. I'm not talking about every situation. I'm talking about situations where there's risk and there is abusive behaviours. Can we just focus on that and you put your feelings to one side, please? Because actually, I know this is happening. We know this is happening because it's translating into cases. And those women are very, very isolated because they, they don't necessarily have independent knowledge of the nation that they're in, right? If we were to be taken to Pakistan, married to somebody there. For instance, you, Ross, if you were taken to Pakistan, married off to somebody there, you don't know the language. Do you know how to call the police? Do you know the number for the police in Pakistan? No, I don't. Do you, would you know what a police station looks like? Here, police stations are uniform, right? So they, they look the same everywhere. However, we know that because we're born and raised in this country. We know what a police station looks like. If you're not in this country, you don't know what it looks like. The police uniform in Pakistan is completely different. They don't wear what we wear here. Their uniform's like um like a I want to say like a khaki brown type uniform. So everything's different for them. Um and if you're new in a country, there's confidence issues as well about interacting with the wider society. You're very much dependent on that that person, and abuse is absolutely likely to happen. Um, but the other thing, Ross, we have to be careful of. So the women's sector specifically fought very hard against this, um, 
caricature of what the perfect victim is. Not every victim is submissive. Not every victim is going to cower away in the corner and not stand up for themselves. In 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 a, in <clears throat> in an abusive relationship, our responses to um, fear and trauma vary. Right? We know the kind of fight, flight, freeze, all of those kinds of things that can can happen. And over long term abuse, your responses change. You kind of know when you can fight back. You know when you can't. You know when you have to. You know you kind of learn that sort of thing. Um, and over time, what's happened specifically is the caricature of the perfect victim has come back. Some women's services have started creating this special focus on migrant women who are um, whose immigration status is unstable and uncertain, who haven't got right to access benefits if, if their relationship breaks down. Um, that's because they're feeding into the old fashioned idea of what the perfect victim is. Meaning that, for example, if there, if there were two, ish, two simultaneous things going on at the same time, there's the migrant woman who's, whose case is very complex, who fits that perfect victim sort of mold, what we used to think is the perfect victim, who's going to struggle to escape, who's going to be super, super trapped, who's not going to fight back. This, this is the sexy victim. Then you've got a victim who doesn't have immigration-related issues, is a bit bullshy because now she's been in continual fight for years in this abusive relationship. I'm not talking about, I'm not necessarily even talking about the race of the victim, right? They could be two brown women in exactly that same situation. Um, the focus is mostly on the submissive, the caricature of the victim, because that victim um, is sexy. Every You can sell that victim. That victim is submissive. That victim doesn't bite back. That victim is deserving of help. So the work that was done previously in the women's sector to shatter the caricature of the perfect victim has now been brought back by the same women's services through this migrant women fetish that we're seeing now because, you know, it's the sexy victim. And I, I really have a problem with that. With the interpretation of the woman as the victim, I think you had, what's her name on your show? Erin Present? Am I saying her name right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she's super interesting. Um, uh, she made a good point that often abuse can go both ways and then in other situations as well. It's actually just it's the one that's least talked about is when a woman abuses a man. Uh, what does the demographical breakdown of spousal abuse actually look like? There definitely are female perpetrators. From You're right, I think it's complicated from domestic abuse perspective we have to be very, very careful about whether um, female perpetrators are just abusing or if they're fighting back, we have to differentiate. And that's very, very complicated uh, to do. We do it, but it is, it, you have to be careful that you're not framing somebody as a perpetrator that is a victim fighting back. Mm. And that there's an assessment process that follows to ensure that a victim, that a that a, a referral is genuinely a vic, uh, a, a perpetrator, not a victim. Hmm. Um, uh, and I guess, I mean, we do that with the with the men as well uh, to, to to determine if if um, if they are victims. And sometimes we do see that, and then they would be referred on to the relevant service. Respect published some statistics recently about how they'd seen a significant increase of male victims during the pandemic. Oh. Um, yeah, it's worth looking them up. I think I tweeted them recently. Um, I can't remember them off the top of my head, unfortunately, which is embarrassing. But yeah, they do exist. From my perspective, one of the things that I'm also very, I feel very passionate about is, so there's abuse going on within the relationship. Um, and the children are often 
second thought. So you might have uh, an abusive relationship between, say, and statistically, the, the, the male is more likely to abuse the female. That's still, unfortunately, statistically the case. Um, but in that, in that dynamic, what you might find is that the woman starts then abusing the children as the, the weaker in the, the, the kind of, uh, as her kind of own outlet. But in that situation, from my perspective, the woman is st the woman still framed as the victim when actually, yes, she's the victim from one angle, but she's also a perpetrator in another way. Um, and I, I think we do do need to start being mindful because those children then, children are then likely to go on and take two roles, either a perpetrator or a victim later on. Um, and they're the kind of forgotten part of the picture. Um, uh, I've got a lovely colleague who was talking about this the other day, and she's far more articulate. She works in a children's centre. She's far more articulate about the impact on on children. But I can say that from personal perspective. I mean, my mum, you know, was forced into an early marriage. Um, there, the the family, the whole family, and the whole community was abusive in my case. But then our mum was very abusive to us, violently so. And often as an adult, whenever I've talked about it, the the reaction is, oh, your mum must have had a really hard time. My mum smashed my fucking head open. Do you know what I mean? Like, why are you, what, at what, at what point are you going to go, yeah, your mum was a violent, abusive person. Mm. So I feel like it takes away from what, what we as children experience because they're, you know, so desperate to paint my mum as a victim. Again, because my mum fit that caricature of the perfect victim, but she was such a violent woman um, and she was only a perpetrator. From my perspective, she was only a perpetrator. Like I didn't see her victimized in any way. Um, and even if I did, but uh, uh, when she was abusing me, that wasn't the thought that I was having. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's complicated, you know, like that's that's something that I I feel like I, I, I would like to see more focus on, uh, on on accountability for women who then abuse their children rather than pussyfooting around them and in, in the children becoming invisible um, and the repair work that needs to go on after that. Like, I, I, I don't think I'd forgive my mum for the violence that I endured throughout my childhood from her. Um yeah, it's um, it's it's quite tough. <laughs> I bet. Um, you always hear about uh, uh, people who commit violence are uh, often the victims of violence in their childhood. Uh, how likely is someone to have not grown up in a violent family to then become a violent abuser later on? Does that ever happen? It happens, but it's rarer. Mm. Like in our in our assessments, we do ask about um, childhood, like what mum and dad's relationship was like, um, and yeah, and we ask about it because it is a factor. So if you've grown up with violence, you're more likely to normalise violence, aren't you? Whereas if you haven't, um, you're less likely to. For the people that. Um, Weirdly, I've been doing this for a long time. For people that haven't grown up around violence that still use violence, weirdly, it still shocks me. Mm. Oh, okay, so what happened? How did how did that become a factor in your life? It still intrigues me. Um, but as I say, it's 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 more common that if you've seen violence or abuse, like we don't necessarily think, you know, um somebody's only ever hearing shouting in their house that is likely to have an impact on them. Uh, and it might be that they don't necessarily just shout, that they do go the next step in their own relationships because they've normalized that this is how we talk to each other and it could escalate. Um, but yeah, I do think if you see it, you're more likely to do it. So it's the the, the saying, isn't it? Children see, children do. Mm. I've heard that before. <laughs> no, I haven't heard that before, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've heard monkey see monkey do. I guess it means the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's the same thing though, isn't it? Like we are all monkeys, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're close enough. We came from there. <laughs> Yeah, exactly exactly what's your favorite kind of monkey oh oh orangutans you're right i was gonna say wrong it's orangutan. yeah <laughs> but you said yeah. <laughs> yeah orangutans i love their so little faces good. yeah love them have you ever seen the um orangutan rescue yeah, um watch, watch videos of that all the time <laughs> Isn't it lush? Isn't it lush? Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to online. cuddle a monkey. I'd love to cuddle an orangutan. Really? Sorry, not a, a monkey. Uh, I don't think I love chimps that much. They're really violent, aren't they? Chimps. And really yeah, aggressive. Chimps are supposed to be very violent. They don't look yeah. violent. Oh, I guess the baby ones don't. But maybe the because orangutans, the 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 actual adult ones have like massive heads, and they go from like really cute to like just kind of fuggish looking. <laughs> but they're always just like. I don't know, you don't see them acting violently that often. They're just walking around with their big arms. <laughs> Mate, I, honestly, I saw this video once and it was about palm oil. Uh, it was a YouTube video um, about palm oil and it made me, I was so, like, if I think about it, it still makes me feel really, really upset. That um, It's about, like, um, you know, the palm plantations where they're cutting down the trees and the orangutan homes and stuff. Oh, okay. Um, some of the douchebags were um, taking the orangutans, yeah. tying them down, and raping them. Well, people were raping orangutans. People were raping orangutans, and all that they didn't show the kind of scene, um, but they sh they played a video of the orangutan screaming. Oh. And like, every time I think about it, it like just sends me like. I, I won't even audio. I won't even like um sustainably sourced orang um orangutans. <laughs> won't even eat sustainably sourced palm oil because it just it just made me feel so harrowed seeing that. I thought, how disgusting are we as a species oh, to do God. stuff like that? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I think most people would <laughs> do that. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's so messed up though isn't it it's so messed up what makes you think i should put my penis in a in an orangutan uh it's kind of like the any holes are goal mentality i guess taken to the extreme yeah yeah it's messed up isn't it that's fucking gross it's, yeah. it's a good thing though, though we've kind of moved away from that quite a lot i feel like there has been quite a shift in orangutans no <laughs> no the any holes are goal oh, type right. thing right? <laughs> We have kind of moved away from that. I think uh, I imagine that yeah, you know, younger lads are more likely to to do stuff like that. But I don't. I mean, I thankfully I don't feel like I hear that that often. Mm. It might just be the people that I hang around with though that are a bit more, a bit more sensible. Maybe more... it's that if if I'm remembering correctly, it's only take you'd really hear around school before people were actually having sex. So. Yes, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Well, yeah, that is true. Like you've got I think young lads have got to say stuff like that and see people look at them like you're a dick. <laughs> it's just part of growing up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes we learn from how people react to us, right? Hmm. Like we say things and we test the water and young people in particular they learn from testing boundaries and kind of testing the things that, that they say, the ideas that they have. Um, and I think that that we can't necessarily entirely stop that. Um, they kind of need to learn from from people around them that yeah, it's time to grow up. You can't say shit like that anymore. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I kind of... Um, I was thinking a lot about last time we talked. Do you remember we talked a little bit about BLM? I know like oh, quite I was a lot of people. About last time you were on my podcast, when I was on your podcast, yeah, yeah, which I still haven't published because oh. I've been really lazy. <laughs> people might be hearing <laughs> this. I've done anything with the channel for like ages. Actually, I just I just stopped and was like, I'm going to take a break from it, and the break got longer and longer have and you longer. Just got loads so. of interviews that you haven't put out yet. How many have you got in the yeah, bag? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but hopefully that means when I start doing it again, I'll have like a little bit of a backlog that I can I can edit. Oh, yeah, nice. I um. So yeah, like uh, last time we talked, um, remember we were, I kind of asked you about if you think about race more often, hmm. 
they say I'm supposed to do. Um, I don't know, that made me feel really sad. Because <laughs> I know for a fact it wasn't the case. When we first met, mm. we, we've known each other for quite a few years now, think, aren't we? I don't think race ever came up. No, no, it never did. It never, ever did. And even um, even Jack's mum, like my partner Jack, mm. we've been together for over seven years now. Um, it was never an issue. Mm. We never thought about it. We never talked about it. And I feel like that's all I talk about now. Mm. And it's all that comes up now. And I think BLM have done that. Not in a good way, though. Mm. Like, I, I'm more aware now than I've ever been before that I'm brown. Like I used to forget. I used to forget all the time. A friend of mine once asked me if um, really messed up. They asked me if I wanted to do this, um, basically war porn. It's like war tours. Wanted to go to uh, the Gaza Strip. There's like this feminist group that take women to the Gaza Strip so that they can go and see what war's really like because it's not enough just hearing about it it's not enough just seeing it on the news we need to go and tell people that we've done this really noble thing of going to a war zone and i came back and i said to jack about it and this was, <laughs> it was 2016 right and um i thought these women are wanting to go and we just like have you forgotten that you're brown because like that's an issue out there <laughs> and i was like oh, I did, I actually, gen and it, it sounds moronic when I say it out loud, but I genuinely used to forget because it wasn't an issue, genuinely wasn't an issue. Um, yes, there were some issues that, like, I specifically faced because of my brown family, right? And that was because of the family, not because of society. Like, my experience in comparison to my parents' experience of, of racism has been, my life was harder because my family made it hard, not because the wider population made it hard. I actually felt much safer overall with white people than I did with brown people. Brown people genuinely made me feel like they were going to kill me. And that took years to stop. Like it's only been maybe the last five years, six years that I've maybe a little bit less than that, actually. I think maybe four, three, four years. That I genuinely felt like when I when I see a brown face, I don't think that they're going to kill me. That used to happen for years, but that's because of the kind of environment I grew up in. Um, but the fact that now we're talking about race all the time, I I've, I feel really sad about that, Ross. I it just it was a non-issue. It was just a non-issue. Um, and like I remember when the whole BLM thing first started after George, George Floyd and everybody was talking about colour and race. Jack's mum asked me for the first time ever, um, are you one of these women of colour? And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm just your daughter-in-law. That's it. Do Nothing's changed. <laughs> and and it was weird because it... it it's clearly never been an issue until then. And it wasn't an issue. It was just these morons were coming on TV and radio and saying that you've got to make it something. You've it's you've got to you've got to you've got to identify somebody's colour, otherwise you're denying them their experience. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're just not. And actually, I feel worse about it now because they have made it an issue than I did before like it was it never used to it never used to bother me at all and it bothers me now that i'm asked about it all the time um do you find that people were um more nervous around you now than they used to be they're more i think that's always been a bit of the case a bit of a case though really because what you've got to remember is george floyd and the whole blm thing was just it kicking off at that point in time before that, I've seen throughout my career people pussyfooting around ethnic minorities um, and being nervous about what you can and say, what you can say and what you can't say. Because you've got to remember, um, for a long time, uh, people have utilised the whole um, 
it's a bad thing to say is it because it, it, it comes with its own weight now the race card issue has been used a lot when um the police or professionals get involved and that happened after the stephen lawrence inquiry uh, and the kind of whole we're institutionally racist at that time um and also simultaneously what's also been going on over the last several years is the whole islamophobia thing right so people now are terrified professionals specifically now are terrified what's difficult as well is is that i advise people to justify the decisions they make which is more paperwork which it shouldn't be um but it is if you're terrified that any decision you make is going to result in you leaving your job uh, in losing your job then justify your decisions yes that's more work but it's better that you do that than we than we end up with another dead victim or we end up with another person coming into the courts after you know way more abuse because you couldn't do your job at an earlier stage but i think also as a nation we need to start putting more resources into early intervention and prevention rather than firefighting and covid was a big example of that like if you think if we were to kind of shift on to health for a sec um the people that ended up worst off um from covid we're not necessarily just talking about the elderly here like younger people that were likely to end up in hospital or die from covid had health issues um were overweight um that that shows that we need to be doing far far more generally with most issues to prevent and get involved at an earlier stage rather than being you know a temporary plaster near the end cool i was going to ask you a question then but i forgot what it was always <laughs> <laughs> the way um uh, how long you got uh, what time is it? Right, I'll probably have 10. to. I probably have to head off soon. I've got to try and fucking sort those cakes out, Ross. Oh no! <laughs> so uh, why don't we just quickly talk about your show? Yeah, where did the name Four Freedoms come from? So um, it's really uh, we spent a lot of time actually thinking about it because um, from from our perspective, so me and Jack sort of the name actually, um, and bless him he does quite a lot of the back back end stuff like help, helping me kind of research for questions and research the people that we're we're interviewing um uh and we wanted from our perspective we've got four things that are important to us specifically so freedom of speech absolutely you know um we've seen some of the biggest shifts in society because we've dared to speak about them and and also for freedom of speech has always been a tool of the most oppressed not the people that are comfortable in doing all right um who have the power to say whatever they want um so that was that's and over time that's become more important for us as we've seen um free speech and the right to criticize anything and anyone and any ideas being suppressed um being led by the woke in particular in recent times it's become more important to us um that and then um the freedom to either believe or disbelieve whatever you want um so i've i've both been a believer and a non-believer and i've seen um i've seen dishonesty on both sides actually um the religious obviously it's quite obvious what they might um manipulate but then i've seen that in the the irreligious side as well like a, a minor example of that would be all religions are equally as bad not in england i'm sorry it's just not the case when was the last time a christian went and blew themselves up are we going to be honest about this um you know but uh, it, <sighs> and also i've seen comparisons by the atheist sphere of hijabs and habits you know like is it a, is it called a habit a nun's habit oh yeah yeah i've habit. seen that before yeah um and the thing is one is 
one you're brainwashed about and is enforced. Mm. I saw toddlers wearing hijabs the other day and it made my blood boil. Mm. A nun's habit, you you make that choice along with that choice. <laughs> Here, baby. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, so a nun's habit you you make the choice to become a nun with that choice comes the adoption of the clothing as Mm. well and also if you then decide this is no longer for me Mm. you do have that option to remove yourself from that sphere might be harder to remove yourself because it usually is Mm. um but you have that choice to remove yourself um, uh, and, and remove that item of clothing as well. So to compare the two, it just doesn't make sense, mm. um, just so that they can comfortably say that all religions are equally as bad. I think there's a real dishonesty there. You know, when was the last time you saw a Buddhist blow themselves up? It just doesn't happen, does it? And also country context, from my perspective, country context matters. Um, uh, so in different countries, different uh, things manifest differently. And that's, that's important too. And that again, feeds into free speech. What you find in terms of various issues actually is this, this dishonesty about how it's the same everywhere. Like um, you'll find people um, talking about trans issues in in Iran or in Pakistan where trans people are murdered and don't have any legal protection and making out that it's exactly the same in England when we know it's not. So I don't, personally i don't like that dishonesty i'm all fine say whatever you want to say but don't lie don't appropriate the issues of another country to justify your hysteria and irrationality in britain when it's not the same exactly the same with the whole george floyd thing what we saw was anti-racist activists who basically are just racists um claiming that we've got the same racial politics as the US in Britain, when we clearly haven't, it's just not the case. Um, So those were some considerations for the first two. Um, We think also that what we would like to see is creating an economic stability so that we don't have to, um, we don't want to go to war. Um, and we don't want war to come to us. We want the, the the citizens of our nation to feel safe and secure from um, from outside um, harm and inside harm, and also to have that security from tyrants in in positions of power as well. Um, so that was another consideration. I've forgotten what the last one was, Ross. So are you trying what? to think of four things and those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four I forgot what the last. I have been on ages. You'll have to cut that last bit out because you can't say you, uh, you. You can't have me saying I forgot what the last one was. That looks so bad. You <laughs> <laughs> say, and there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it at the end, we can splice it in. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Is there any guests you've had that have like surprised you? Yeah, he hasn't been he hasn't been published yet. Actually, we had uh, and this is where this is where um, it's important to understand different country contexts, mm. right? You know, we were just talking about how uh, things manifest differently in different countries. Evangelical Christians in America actually scare me. Evangelical Christians in the the, the UK, eh, I can laugh at them mm. quite comfortably, and it's not really an issue, right? I spoke to a guy who was talking about homosexuality in America. He's an evangelical Christian talking about uh, homosexuality in America, and, and I, I I was saying to him, "You said some pretty outrageous things, actually. Some would think they were offensive." <laughs> And he was like, yeah, 
fine. Um, <laughs> so oh my God. it was, uh, I remember thinking, like, I, I remember thinking at the end of it, yes, this has shocked me, but it cemented for me the the fact that we are different. America is very, very different. They've got different racial politics. They've got different um, religious politics. They've got different. They've got different demographic altogether. Um, you know, even if you were to think about left right out there, their their so called left wing parties of of a pretty free market oriented oriented out there. Um, so just everything is so radically different. The only thing, Ross, we share with America is language and barely that because, you know, it's even, even that's still very, very different. So it's cemented for me that country context matters. And actually for me, what it meant after that interview in particular, I think what happened was I realized that if I was going to talk about an issue, it was important not to jump from country to country, which has made it harder <laughs> because previously when I talked about honor crimes, for instance, like I would bring in the fact that you, uh, um, the kind of international kind of picture around honor crimes as well. Um, now it becomes a little bit complicated on that subject because what we do have in England that has been happening for a long time is something that's been called the export of murder where victims, families take their victims to their country of origin to murder them. We've seen a couple of cases like that recently um, because so, so in Pakistan, if you're a dual citizen, um, so you could be born and raised in England, but if the paperwork's been done for you back home, you're actually considered a dual citizen. Mm. Um, if when when they're taken back to their home nations and murdered out there they're less likely to get the prosecution you're more more likely to be able to bribe off officials as well um like one of the cases that we saw with samia shahid not enough evidence the evidence was all there but they don't one they don't necessarily have the robust systems in place that we would have here to ensure that perpetrators are held to account two you can buy off officials Three, like that culturally is acceptable. So if you have certain ideas in society that are acceptable, the likelihood is that the officials of the, that society are gonna have those same ideas. So it has made it harder for me because I'm very careful about how I navigate that international context so as not to, not to kind of, um talk about honor killings just in pakistan and go well, this is why we need to do this here i have to make it relevant and the relevant is that link but i can't say a thousand women in pakistan are murdered so we need to do this here because then that doesn't make sense so what it's done for me it's been an education because what it's done for me is meant that i have to i have to use things that fit the, the cause, make sure it's relevant and not, not inappropriately utilize the, the, the suffering that is going on elsewhere to legitimize my cause in England when actually I've got some legislation and protection in this country that I can utilize to safeguard victims here. The struggle that I face here is professional hesitancy and that's been going on for a long long time and that's shifted over a long long time to mean different things you know 20 years ago professionals were saying they didn't understand this this issue so my job at that point was to educate them about the issue now because we have legislation around um forced marriages and fgm we don't have specific legislation around honor crimes and we don't need it they just need to understand what honor crimes are and most professionals do um understand those issues um because it's their job to understand them um what what we're dealing with now is professional hesitancy specifically so in the past it was a mix of ignorance and innocent ignorance not not uh, malicious ignorance and nervousness about allegations of racism today 
it's majority allegations of racism. They understand the staff. When I go and deliver training around harmful traditional practices, I don't spend much time talking about definitions, don't spend much time talking about legislation. I spend a lot of time on statistics and statistical analysis um, so they can get an understanding of where this is going on, what demographic is most likely to use it, um, and what their response should be. But the majority of the time that I spend in training is around fears and anxieties around professionals. And I try I try and deal with that, but you can only do so much in a day. And my training's only a day. Uh, yeah, uh, you got anything else to add before I let you go? Any words of wisdom? No. <laughs> I mean, the, uh, I mean, the message is always the same, Ross. The laws are there, right? Just do your fucking job. Like, if you see an issue within a community, don't racialize it, don't politicize it. Just crack on with your job, because that's that is your job. Um, we had, I've got a, a friend, a lovely friend, who um, has just released a paper about forced marriages in the Jewish community. Um, I actually, although it's a brilliant piece of work, um, it made me very sad that she had to do that when we've had legislation in this country for a very long time around forced marriages. She was saying how it was very difficult to convince professionals that this was happening in the Jewish community as well. But that is because this crime has both been racialized and politicized um so that people don't deal with it don't feel comfortable dealing with it and now they have again they've built these caricatures of this is the victim this is the perpetrator this is what they look like this is how they behave so that means that if tomorrow you were to see a forced marriage of a white woman it doesn't fit that box that we ain't going to work with it it ain't a forced marriage we're going to call it something else i have met victim white victims of honor crimes that um, have said that professionals refused to acknowledge that this was an honor crime when that component was there. You know, they had a relationship with somebody from one of those communities and they had felt that they had dishonored them, so tried to kill them. Mm. All of the all of the components of it are there, um, but because this crime has both been racialized and politicized, um, they they were denied that 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 a that help. B, they denied that it was that issue. And she needed the same support as uh, a brown woman who would be experiencing honor crimes. Exactly the same support because there was a, an, a network of people who were trying to harm her. So What's the worry just deal with there, the crime. then by the people who didn't want to help her that it, they wouldn't get funding because the person was didn't fit the demographic that they usually associate yeah. Or did in they their, just not believe in it? Mind, they, they couldn't believe that, that this would happen to a white woman. And she's still talk, talking about it. Um, and there's that she's not the only one. I have met others that this has happened to. We've had a white honour killing in this country. She It was a young girl who was, um, uh, she was being groomed just by, the, by a grooming gang. She got married to one of these, um, no, she didn't get married, sorry. She had a child with one of these perpetrators. Her sister went and um, had a pop at him, and because it embarrassed him in front of his community, they they killed her, and that was an honour killing. Mm. Um, but why we're still having to... I'm even frustrated because I'm having to refer to it as a white honour killing rather than an honour killing, right? Because I'm having to hammer the point in that this is a crime in its own right. You have to deal with a crime. And because professionals have racialized it, it's very easy for us who are challenging it to fall into that same trap. So sometimes I find myself getting all tongue-tied because I'm trying not to, but I don't know, I really don't know how to challenge something that um, that everybody has racialized and, and, and kind of made so political. And I'm frustrated, Ross. My life has been politicized by left, right, Muslim, ex-Muslim, um, feminists, men, you know, women, everybody. At what point do I just get to crack on with my life and, and not be utilised by some douchebag yeah. who wants to use it for their cause, right? Like, at what point can we just go, okay, you're, one of, you're a citizen, 
and you have all the same legal protections as your white counterparts. That's what the law in this country should be based on, well, is based on and should continue to be based on. Yeah, I mean, there are people trying to trying to reverse that. You've got uh, racial activists and they're everywhere. They're in women's services that never had them before. They're in the police. You've got activist lawyers. You're now starting to get activist judges as well, which is really worry- worrying, right? The law... The law has to be blind. The law has to be impartial. That's its job. So you can ensure both victim and perpetrator get a fair hearing. And I, I mean that not just as somebody who has been a victim in the in the past, but I, I mean, if I get falsely accused in the future or somebody I really love gets fo- falsely accused in, in the future, I want to know that the law is going to do its job, which it it's at risk right now from all angles and we need to deal with this before it's too late. Mm. I agree. Yeah, that's my, that's my ending rant, Ross. Happy? Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for listening and thank you to Sadia for joining me. Go check out her show Four Freedoms on YouTube. Our episode should be out in the not too distant future and follow her on Twitter at Sadia936 and that's about it from me. Okay, next one. Bye. Yeah.